Hello, this is Monica Reeds. I'm Georgina Godwin. My guest today is J.R.R. Tolkien, Professor of English Literature and Language at the University of Oxford, and is considered to be an academic authority on Chaucer. Her 2019 biography, Chaucer, A European Life, was shortlisted for the Wolfson History Prize, and it won three other awards. Her latest book is The Wife of Bath, a biography. It tells the history of the first ordinary woman in English literature and the breadth of her influence, which can still be felt widely today. Marion Turner, welcome to Monocle Reads. Thank you very much for having me. It's lovely to have you in the studio face to face to talk about this fascinating book. And I just want to ask, first of all, where your interest in, in medieval times came from. I think that when I first started studying medieval literature, I was really surprised by it. It did lots of things that I wasn't expecting. It was much more experimental and varied. It did things that people expect only from modern literature. And that really caught my attention, you know, 30 years ago. Yeah, so interesting. And of course, you've gone on to pursue that as a, as a career. Yeah, absolutely. And I find that students often feel exactly the same. There are some students that might be worried about it at first or they expect it to be something that it's not. And once you can break through that barrier and get them accessing the texts for themselves, most people, I think, find it surprising, fascinating and to be doing things that are prescient in all kinds of ways. Mm. And fresh and relevant to us today, this writing from hundreds of years ago. Exactly. I think that when you're reading medieval literature, I always feel there's a there's a tension between, on the one hand, this feeling of these people are thinking just like we were. They have the same concerns. And, of course, we see that so much in The Wife of Bath with these concerns about women's voices not being heard, for example. On the other hand, I think it's also really important to make imaginative leaps into the past, to think, no, there are things that are really different. We need to try to get into different people's shoes and not think that everything is just like us but dressed up in funny hats. Mm. You know, that There are actually <laughs> these really crucial differences about being a person in a world in which things such as privacy are thought about very very differently, for example. So I do think it's important to keep that tension in mind of similarity and difference. And and the huge uh, circumstances like the plague, for instance. Yeah, exactly. So the pandemic that hit when Chaucer was about six years old was very different from our pandemic. You know, it wiped out maybe a third, maybe a half of the population. And it was indiscriminate. You know, children were affected as much as older people. I mean, one of the really interesting things about that pandemic was that for people who survived, life got better because the same amount of work needed to be done, there was the same amount of land, but there were many fewer people to do it. So that meant that despite the government's attempts to keep wages down to pre-pandemic levels, that didn't work. And in fact, wages went up, more people moved to cities, more women got jobs and moved to cities. So despite the psychological trauma of the plague, there were really dramatic social changes and economic improvements. You know, And in those decades after the plague, we see things like sumptuary laws, which were laws trying to control what people could wear because there were all these government anxieties about social climbing. But none of those laws worked and there was social change in, in the second half of the 14th century. Uh, and we'll come back to just how that impacted women in a moment. I want to talk first about Chaucer mm -hmm. because that was the subject of your, your yeah. first book. And of course, you are a leading expert in the field. You argue in your book that he wasn't just a, a British or an English writer. He was a European writer. 
Yeah, absolutely. So Chaucer, in his own life, travelled very widely. So he went to Italy at least twice. He fought in the Hundred Years' War in France, where he was taken prisoner. He went to France and the Low Countries many times. He also went to Navarre in what is now Spain, but what was then a separate country. And there he would have encountered Jewish and Muslim communities. But back at home as well, London was an extremely cosmopolitan place. He was born in Vintry Ward in London on the river, which was the area of London that had more immigrants in it than any other. And at this time, there was a global trade network. So he grew up seeing the ships come in, which were bringing spices from as far away as Indonesia. And he worked for many years in the export trade. So he was a customs officer for the wool custom. Now, wool was England's big export. So he saw and supervised these ships that were going off all over the world and then bringing products back in. And then in cultural terms, the vast majority of his literary influences were not written in English. So he was reading things primarily in French and Latin and then, crucially, Italian. So he was one of the first people in England to be reading widely in Italian literature. And what he read in Dante, in Petrarch, in Boccaccio really enabled him to change what English literature was capable of. So we very much have to see him in those European contexts. And how was he so educated? I mean, I believe he was a merchant's son. Yeah, absolutely. He was a merchant's son. So we don't have details about his education, but he certainly would have gone to grammar school, a boy like him. And all educated English men at this time were trilingual. So it was a trilingual country, English, Latin and French. What was unusual about Chaucer, well, I suppose there were multiple things that were unusual about Chaucer, but in particular that he picked up Italian. And he probably did that because he was a merchant's son and he was mixing with Italian merchants and bankers. And then when he got a foothold into the royal court, he was therefore the person chosen to go on Italian missions where he could encounter manuscripts of Italian texts. But he also will have got more education when he was within royal and noble households. You often could get more education from tutors there. And he was clearly an autodidact because the range of his reading and interests is extraordinary. So I think although his environment enabled him to pick up certain things, he also must have done a lot of it himself because his range is really extraordinary. Mm. And was he revered in his lifetime as a writer? He was. I mean, we have to remember that this is the era before print. So, of course, texts just couldn't circulate the way that they could 100 years later. So we're talking relatively limited circles. But at the same time, there are references to him in his lifetime from minor people in the court, from scribes, from people in the city, and also from some French poets, for example. So he was certainly being read and being highly respected in his lifetime. But as far as we know, he never made any money from his writing. He always had a day job. And I always think that's extraordinary to think of him as someone that is doing his day job and then going home and writing the Canterbury Tales you know, by candlelight in the evening. It's, it's amazing. And what more do we know about the birth of the Canterbury Tales? Well, Chaucer is drawing on lots of sources, but he also brought his own, you know, I think, genius to create something quite different. So most of the tales do have sources, but then he puts his own spin on them. So I think a good example of this is if we think of the Canterbury Tales as a whole. So it's a tale collection where a group of people get together and tell stories. Now, there are other books like this, tale collections. But if we think about Boccaccio's tale collection, the Decameron, which is a brilliant collection, but a crucial difference is that in the Decameron, the tale tellers are all of the same social class. They're all of a high social class. Now, what Chaucer does is he brings together a motley crew 
of tale tellers. So we have, as well as the knight, we have a cook, we have a merchant, we have a sailor, we have a lawyer, people of what we would think of largely as a kind of middling class. We do have a miller and people of, of lower class, but not really, it's not, it's not a group of peasants. But at the same time, it is not the dominant, authoritative, aristocratic voice. And the extraordinary innovation of the Canterbury Tales is that Chaucer is saying, let's not only listen to voices of power, to the hegemonic voices of authority, let's listen to what lots of different people have to say. We don't have to agree with them, but we should listen to multiple different perspectives. And we can see similar things in lots of the tales where he'll take sources, but he'll do something very different with them. And of course, for the first time, really, we're seeing a woman. Yeah. So what I think is really fascinating about the wife of Bath is that she is, what I argue, the first ordinary woman in English literature. So in the Canterbury Tales, there are three women who tell stories, but the other two are nuns, for example. And when we look at literature before Chaucer, the women tend to be, on the one hand, damsels in distress, princesses, virgins, queens, nuns, or on the other, whores or witches or old crones or bored procuress kind of figures. And in Alison of Bath, the wife of Bath, we see a woman who is although extraordinary, also ordinary. And by that I mean she is a married woman. She's been married many times. She's sexually active. She's a working woman. She's middle-aged, you know, a woman over 40 getting her voice heard. She's middle-class, mercantile. So she is a woman that is much easier to relate to for, for most people than a queen or a whore or a damsel in distress. Mm, with, a, with her gap teeth and, and so on. She was, though, a fictional character, or was she based on people he knew? I mean, we, I suppose, no definite way of knowing that. Well, I think it's really important to think about both those elements, and that's what I try and do in the first half of this of my book, The Wife of Bath, the biography, is to talk both about the stereotypes, the literary sources, and how they interact with the historical environment at the time. So there are clear sources for The Wife of Bath in literature. They go back to the Bible, the Church Fathers, Ovid and also more recent sources. So, for example, in The Romance of the Rose, a very influential medieval French text, there's an old woman called Lavielle, and lots of aspects of The Wife of Bath are based on this figure. We can trace some very direct direct connections, but there are also crucial differences. So Lavielle is an old prostitute, whereas The Wife of Bath is essentially a respectable woman who's been married many times. And one of the things that I'm really interested in is trying to trace why this kind of character could emerge in the late 14th century, because this is a time that some people have called a golden age for women. It was a time when, in England... Women could inherit. That's what we see the wife of Bath doing. She makes her money not through prostitution, but through work in the cloth trade and from inheriting from her husbands. Because at this time, women could make money, they could keep their own money, they could have jobs. They often married many times because they were not financially penalised. They didn't lose their inheritances if they married, for example. Mm. She's very well travelled. Again, women did that. mm, How was the book, and particularly that character, received at the time and in the sort of near future after the book? Well, The Wife of Bath across time has fascinated people and also often caused a lot of anxiety. So right at the beginning... 
Chaucer himself was more fascinated by her than he was by any of his other characters. He gives her much more of an interior than he does his other characters. He gives her much more space to talk about herself, her memories, her future. So we see in her the germs of what we then think of as literary character. He also allows her to get outside of her own tale and text. She pops up in other Canterbury Tales and in a poem completely separate from the Canterbury Tales by Chaucer. We then, in the 15th century, see lots of writers who refer to the wife of Bath, who talk about her. So there's a kind of fascination with her. But also from very early on, we see anxiety. So in early manuscripts of the Canterbury Tales, we often see scribes, the people who wrote out the the manuscripts, making comments in the margins. And some scribes write a lot more in the margins of the Wife of Bath's prologue in particular than they do for any other bits of the Canterbury Tales. And some of those scribes are obsessively trying to make us not believe the wife. Mm-hmm. So they'll write in the margins lots and lots of counterexamples saying, you're essentially saying, don't believe this woman. This is what the Bible really says. And sometimes they are misquoting the Bible to try to get us to believe something different to what the wife of Bath says. So we see this fascination, but real worry that people are going to take the wife of Bath too seriously. Mm, and that's, so, I mean, there's a lot of misogyny in those comments, but mm. also the tale that she tells. I mean, her husband, the way he abuses her, the way he reads her this book, which is all about wicked women. Yeah. Uh, I mean, she goes through essentially what's domestic abuse. Absolutely. So in the prologue, she talks about domestic abuse. And then in her tale, it's a story about rape. So she talks about extremely serious issues. And the Book of Wicked Wives is something that I think is still very resonant today, the idea of the weight of misogyny in history and in books. And one of the important things that she says is that women have not had the chance to tell their own side of the story. And this is something that we then hear echoed in later centuries by Jane Austen, by Virginia Woolf, by many, many writers saying, well, you read all these terrible things about women, but that's because history is biased. We just haven't had the same number of women able to give their side of it. Now, of course, it's interesting because the wife of Bath is not a real woman, but Chaucer is trying to give voice to a female perspective that had had very little space in the past. Mm. What do you think his female influences were? Did he have a strong woman urging him on, saying, you've got to say this, Jeff? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think that... What interests me is what the women around him were like. So his mother owns property, his wife, who he seems to have lived quite separately from quite a lot of the time, always earned her own money as a lady-in-waiting. The queens at the time were influential, they were literary patrons. In London as well, he knew many women who ran businesses, who were trading on their own or running their husbands' businesses. And I talk in the book about many women who were cultural patrons, who were also things like blacksmiths or skinners or doing their own thing. So he was surrounded by those kinds of powerful women. Mm. Let's go into part two of the book, which is Mm. all about Alison's afterlife. You talk first about silencing Alison, which you've, you've touched on slightly here, and then the influence that she had on other writers of the time. Yeah, so when I first wrote the proposal for this book, I thought this part of the book was going to be much shorter than it actually ended up being. It was a different structure. And once I started researching it, I just couldn't believe it because it is hard to find any writer who has not been influenced by the wife of Bath. Some of them I knew about, but then when I started looking into it, I thought, oh my goodness, and Voltaire, and James Joyce, and Ted Hughes, just so much influence. So as you say, the second half of the book goes right across time and also around the world from 17th century ballads to Zadie Smith's 2021 play. And there are all kinds of interesting trends that you can see across time. 
I suppose the main thing that I would bring out is this ongoing fascination. People keep going back to her because she is so unusual and really hasn't been superseded. And what you often see is many writers and filmmakers and different artists who are trying to tame her, to make her safe, to domesticate her. So we see Pope, for example, Alexander Pope, who removes all the bits about sex and having sex in the morning and talking about her genitals and all of those kinds of things, just takes all of those bits out in his translation. Or you see the play by John Gay, which he rewrites and ends up making so that everyone else gets partnered up at the end, except for her. Or in America, she's old and ugly. Yeah, exactly, yeah. and doesn't deserve it. Yeah. And there's an early 20th century play by someone called Percy Mackay in America, and he also... At the end, he forces her to marry the Miller. She's wanted to marry the Chaucer character. But in the end, there's this alliance of important men that force her to marry someone vulgar and low class. So there's lots of examples like that. And when you look across time, there's lots of really interesting creative responses. So the the ballad, The Wanton Wife of Bath, in the, the 17th, late 16th and then through the 17th century, many times rewritten and reprinted. A really fascinating take on the power of her voice where she gets to heaven's gate and ends up kind of beating all the patriarchs and the biblical figures at their own game and gets into heaven at the end. But that ballad was burnt, the printers were put in prison. So you have this tension between her voice keeps surging forward, but people keep trying to suppress it. And what I found really interesting was that across time, you don't see steady improvement. I think the most misogynistic interpretations come in the 20th century. And my bet noir is probably Pasolini's film in the 1970s, where his take on this is that an older woman is so monstrous that having sex with her will cause death. Literally. So her fourth husband dies from having sex with her. Her fifth husband cannot get aroused by her. She ends up biting his nose in a kind of symbol of castration. She's emasculating. She's absolutely monstrous. And I think that it's a really interesting example of the fact that I'm sure many of us would unconsciously perhaps, but like to think that we see improvement across history, that Mm. there's a march of progress. And of course, in some ways, that is true, but it's certainly not universally true. And there are some ways in which women's rights go backwards and then hopefully they take steps forward again. But I think we see that all around us. And this is a real example of it. What about Shakespeare? Yeah. So in my chapter about Shakespeare, I talk about two different aspects of the way that the wife of Bath influenced him. And I suppose it's important to say generally that Shakespeare was really strongly influenced by Chaucer, read Chaucer very carefully. You can see allusions and references to Chaucer in many of his plays, some more overt, some more implicit. But he was very strongly influenced by medieval literature. So Part of my argument, which other people have also suggested, is that Falstaff is his wife of Bath. So this exuberant character who keeps popping up in lots and lots of his plays, who has a vitality that exceeds their original context and indeed has a strong afterlife as well. Falstaff, the power of his voice, his very irreverent use of the Bible, his his self-awareness and his awareness of his own faults. There are so many similarities with the wife of Bath and I think they're really interesting parallel characters. But then I also argue that The Merry Wives of Windsor, which I think is a very neglected Shakespeare play, I argue that that is a direct rewriting of The Wife of Bath's prologue and tale, that in The Merry Wives of Windsor we see mercantile women ending up on top, essentially. We see them showing a knight that women are not sexually available to him, which is exactly what happens in The Wife of Bath's Tale. We see them also showing that women can be 
of lively and powerful and talkative without being whores, without being sexually available to everyone, while maintaining some control over their own sexual desires and sexual destinies. There are just comparisons upon comparisons for these texts. And there's also the fairy scene in the forest, which is a very close mirror. So I think Shakespeare was much more strongly influenced by the wife of Bath than other people have, have recognised in the past. Mm. You mentioned Zadie Smith earlier and her play Wife of Wilsdon, mm. and you have a whole chapter on black Alisons. Yes. So I think that Alison, the wife of Bath, has really been reclaimed in the last two decades, so in the 21st century. And we're now seeing lots of women, and interestingly, particularly black women, um, writing versions of the wife of Bath's prologue and tale. So I talk in that chapter about three writers, Jean Binterbreeze, Patience Agbagby and Zadie Smith, who've all written versions of the wife of Bath and all written, I think, really brilliant versions. And all of them maintain really closely, they maintain aspects of the original, but they also see it as a generative text, a text that is generating new meanings in its new context, in whether it's Nigerian British context or West Indian British context. So, for example, Zadie Smith, her, version, her wife of Williston is quite a close translation adaptation where she sticks very closely to the wife of us prologue and tale, even uses the, iamb- the iambic pentameter as Chaucer did and so on. But she also sets it in a modern context. So the Book of Wicked Wives, for example, which we were talking about before, becomes a collection of books by people such as Jordan Peterson. The Wife of Bath's Tale, which in Chaucer's version is set in Arthurian Britain, is now set in Jamaica in the 18th century. Alison becomes Alvita, a woman from northwest London. And we see figures such as Nelson Mandela popping up as an authority figure, for instance. So I think it's a really brilliant and powerful reworking that shows both the value of reading Chaucer in its original, but also how it can speak to the present moment. And Chaucer's own text is all about liberating people to read lots and lots of different things and interpret them for themselves. And Zadie Smith's plays is an example of that, of the way that we can take literature and use it as creative spurs for ourselves today. Mm. The book is subtitled A Biography, but of course she's not a real woman. Yeah. <laughs> so instantly yeah. you have a problem. I wonder how, how you dealt with that, because she certainly feels, as you talk about her, as if we're talking about Alison, whom we all know and love. Yeah, I mean, I try and talk a lot in the book about the literary sources and precisely about that tension between the literary, the stereotypical and the idea of of real women. And of course, it also straddles time. It it straddles many, many hundreds of years. And I thought quite a lot about Virginia Woolf's Orlando, which is a fictional biography of a real person, Vita, but also someone who straddles hundreds and hundreds of years, even changes gender. So that was a, a kind of inspiration for me. But I think that One of the reasons for for trying to write a creative biography like this, the biography of a literary character, is that I felt that this was a way to tell lots and lots of women's stories because it's hard to access women from the past because we just don't have the same kinds of records often as we have for men. We have lots of bits and pieces, but actually taking this literary character as my hook as my focus then allows me to go off and tell lots of microbiographies about lots of women who I think connect with her and that's what I try and do through the well here are examples of traveling women of storytelling women of women who got married lots of times you know the 15th century duchess who marries a teenager when she's in her 60s you know you know or the the woman who travels and is tortured in the holy land but then manages to make it back or all these fascinating women and so it was a way for me to try to recover lots of forgotten women's stories and 
finally, Marin, just before you go, if people want to read around this, and I'm sure that you, I mean, certainly you sent me straight back to the original, to the Canterbury Tales, sometimes quite off-putting, the medieval language. What, whose translation should we read? Well, I think if people want to read a translation, so there's David Wright's translation, there's also Neville Coghill's famous translation from many decades ago. I think that it's really absolutely fine to be reading it in any version that people like. And also, of course, people might want to read modern adaptations as well. And I think that there's there's just so much out there connecting to Chaucer and the Wife of Bath. Mm, It's absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. The Wife of Bath, a biography, is by Marion Turner. It's published by Princeton University Press. You've been listening to Monocle Reads, thanks to our producer, Nora Hull, and our studio manager, Sarah Nicholl. And you can download this show and previous episodes from our website, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening.